What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Welcome, everybody. I am so excited to be here with Rena Nainan and all of you. Rena and I were originally connected through our mutual friends, who was also part of the Breakline Arena podcast. And so, so happy to have a chance to highlight Rena and her incredible work with all of you today. Rena, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Can I tell you, I don't thank you, first off, for having me. I don't get nervous very often, but I'm kind of anxious about what you're going to ask me because you're such a good interviewer on that podcast. Well, this is going to be just two girlfriends having fun chatting and there's so much ground to cover. Y'all are going to love this. She is, yes, incredibly beautiful. She could have been a supermodel. We are all aware of that. Instead, she's a phenomenal award-winning broadcast journalist on multiple major networks, four years at CBS News, where she was an anchor and a correspondent. She was at ABC News, where she was news anchor for American This Morning and World News Now. And then she was a Middle East correspondent at Fox News. Now she's building her media empire. Rena is founder of Good Trouble Productions, co-host of Ask Lisa. And she's got a lot of other initiatives under her belt, too. So, Rena, thank you for joining us. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you. I love this community. This is so awesome. It really is awesome. I love it, too. So take us back. You're like this world famous journalist, reporter, correspondent. But take us back to graduating from college, 2001. And it was like June of 2001. No one was hiring. Kind of tough market to be in. And you were reflecting on that time in your life. And you said, I couldn't find a job. And then 9-11 happened. And sometimes in the worst of times, there are still incredible opportunities. Talk to us about that moment, like that vulnerable moment in your life as a young woman trying to figure out how to get your foot in the door, what to do next. How did the next couple of months and years unfold for you from there? Mm, What a great question. You know, I had worked all through college in different media places. So I knew when I graduated, I would absolutely have some sort of a cool job. And when that didn't happen, it was so disappointing and upsetting, but I was like, okay, I'm going to take the summer off. I've never taken summer off. I'll take two months off. And BET had just launched a partnership with CBS called BET Nightly News. And I thought this could be a great opportunity. I kept calling the guy to the point where he stopped answering because he could see my number and he knew that was my number. But then I realized that he had a brother in Tampa. So I would call from my home line And then he would pick it up because he thought it was his brother because it's 813 area code. Long story short, I was really persistent. Didn't get a job, didn't get a job. So when I came back in the fall and needed to pay rent, I started temping as a secretary. And it's really humiliating. I graduated from college. I just felt I should be in a different place. I had worked so hard, had a college degree. Like, this is awful. But you know what? Sometimes you just got to put one foot in front of the other and it might not be the job you want, but at least it's paying the bills. Took it. 
And then September 11th happened and I was working as a secretary and I was one block from the White House. So all of the moms in the office took off to get their kids once they found out that the second plane had hit the World Trade Center. And then there was some talk that possibly one could be heading to Washington. And it was me and the CEO of the law firm. And I'm like, we're in the safest place you could possibly imagine. And it turns out Secret Service rushes the building and say, there's a plane headed for the White House. You need to evacuate. As we leave, I get a call from that man saying, can you come in to help? So all that persistence, finally, I knew I was being annoying. Months later, it pays off. He calls me and it's just get to work. So I end up working for them for four months. And one of the things I ended up doing that really made a difference was I looked around and I realized that I had some value. And so four weeks into it, I went and I renegotiated my rate. And I said, look, I feel like this is what I should be paid. Da, da, da. He was just in so in need of help. He doubled my rate. He then fired me after three months because I was too expensive to support, but I took it when I could. But I, I think you're right, Bethany, that sometimes in the worst of moments, there are opportunity and it might not feel like it, but you ride it for as long as you can. Mm. Well, what I love about that is you just didn't take no for an answer. And I, I love the mentality that no does not mean no. No might mean not right now, mm-hmm. but it does not mean no. And so I appreciate that conviction that you had to just keep at it. And also the humility of just, I need a job. I'm going to pay the bills. I'm going to bide my time. And then I'm going to jump for it when the opportunity comes my way. So fast forward a couple of years, you're a Middle East correspondent for Fox News. I mean, you're covering Baghdad, you're covering Benghazi, you're covering Beirut. You reported from all of those locations. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about that experience. I'm just imagining you as a young woman on your own in these incredibly dangerous, incredibly dynamic environments. Rena, as you know, one of the communities Breakline serves are veterans and military spouses. And, and some of the folks on the call have also been deployed to those locations too. So just curious about that phase of your career and what that was like for you at that moment in time. I was so grateful for that opportunity and particularly spending time with the U.S. military and really seeing what it's like to be on a forward operating base for at least 18 months to be away from your family. One thing I remember was, you know, there was (laughs) the women's showers were in a portable far, far, far away because there weren't as many women serving. And I remember brushing my teeth with the towel wrapped around with another female soldier and she had just given birth like a few months earlier and had, you know, left her child with her mom in Texas to come and and fight and serve. And it just puts such perspective when you think about people kind of, you know, it's hard, I think, after you have a kid to come back to any job, but to be potentially deployed for 18 months and the pride in which she served. I've always thought about that, especially when I had hard moments, you know, after having my children. So it was really remarkable to see the examples of people really fighting, trying to make a difference, whether it's the locals who believed in a better situation for their countries, whether it's Gaza or Iraq. But I look back and I just sometimes I wanted so badly to cover the war in Iraq and to be there. And the bosses at Fox were like, you know, we don't understand why you want to go there. Like we have so many, we're sending you to all the best assignments in Washington. Like they just didn't get it. And then I just kept researching and really learning the situation in Iraq, staying up to date, doing the footwork, essentially. And somebody said, you just got to keep doing the footwork and that opportunity will present itself. And it did. 
they discovered it was a Saddam Hussein trial and they didn't have anybody there that they really felt like they could trust to cover it. So they sent me and they said, you're only going to go for six weeks. Don't get any funny ideas. I mean, come on, you're not blonde. You're not going to be on this channel. And what happened was the day we arrived, our hotel got car bombed by Al Qaeda. So the CEO at the time, Roger Ailes, saw that. And, you know, we were nonstop reporting. And this was a time before journalists were really targets. And that was my opportunity. And when I left six weeks later, he hired me instantly to be a correspondent for them and eventually in the Middle East. Mm. So I want to dig in here more because there's so much to your work over there. But there was something that you said, which was, you're not blonde. You're not going to be featured here. And you didn't let that stop you. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like that sort of expectation that certain opportunities are for some people, you know, and not for you. And just deciding that you were going to be unstoppable in spite of that messaging. You know, I think when you have a passion for something that you can't contain, that you naturally, I would naturally wake up and enjoy reading about Iraq, talking to people about Iraq. I was just drawn to it. So it wasn't a forced thing like, oh my gosh, let me learn about this. And it was just something that I would do even if I wasn't paid for it. And I think when you have that passion and you put that into something, you eventually meet opportunity. might not come as quickly as you want necessarily, but there's some form of opportunity I found over the course of my career that does present itself, but you've got to put in the hard work and it's painful. You want to give up and throw in the towel. And I think that's what I really felt deep down inside, that this was a country I wanted to report from, learn more from. At this point, it had been 18 months since the U.S. invasion, and I wanted to understand what did we get wrong? How did we end up in this situation? It was just natural curiosity. And I think never underestimate the power of your gut and natural curiosity to bring you to that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rena. And... I mean, I'm imagining you on the ground in these, again, like incredibly dynamic and dangerous environments. You have a cameraman that you're very close to you to our unit. And will you talk to us about your goal as a Middle East correspondent, the responsibility that you felt? What were you trying to accomplish there? I think we go into wars often and for whatever the reasons are that sometimes the reasons you go in might not necessarily be, as is the case in Iraq, what was initially intended, but there are consequences. And I think there are sacrifices. Are they worth it? What lessons do we learn from this? And what are the mistakes we keep making when it comes to US foreign policy? And I was really impressed by the soldiers that I have been stationed with of of just getting to know them. They're young. And to see that conviction at a young age, purpose at a young age, and the ability to blend with another culture and want to see them succeed. I think those are some of the most powerful examples of people serving in the military that I'm really, to this day, very happy that I was able to witness and see firsthand. But nobody wins in a war. That's just the reality. Nobody. There's just no winner. And I think there are a lot of unintended consequences and being able to examine that to see, is there something that we can learn that potentially we won't repeat in this generation? And that was part of the reason why I wanted to go. As you look back on that phase in your career, you know, you said you were so drawn to it. You were so drawn to Iraq and reporting on the war was something that you would have done for free. 
was there sort of a seminal moment for you as you look back on it, you know, an experience that you had where you said, this is what it was all about for me? What a great question. I think sometimes when your passion or your conviction can take you to a point that you might not have intended. And, you know, in this case, it was the car bombing. And I look back on it and the risks that our military families, our military take over and over and over again and are willing to do that. It just astounds me because I could only handle six weeks at a time. That was usually the rotation for most journalists coming in and out of Baghdad. And I always reminded myself that those soldiers are still back there after six weeks. By six weeks for my own mental health, I felt I needed to get out. So I think a lot about that. And I think looking back at how that car bomb could have killed my life, would it have been worth it? And I think yes, you know, because in many ways that started my career. But I think it's hard when you overcome something difficult and you look back and you realize and you're processing it and you realize, whoa, that was quite a moment. And I knew that I was meant to do that, to be abroad and be a foreign correspondent. And I think it was worth the risk. Mm. Thank you, Rena. And of course, I think it's top of mind for all of us. Here we are with another war, you know, and Russia recently invading Ukraine. And you continue to contribute on foreign policy and would love to just hear your thoughts, you know, what you're thinking about as as you watch this tragedy unfold. Tragedy is absolutely the right word. Absolutely the right word. I really feel for all the people, particularly anybody in Europe at this point, because covering other wars, what's different from Iraq and Afghanistan is that Putin has the largest supply of nuclear arms and seems unhinged. And While there were different issues and threats that made the two other countries very dangerous, I think chemical and biological weapons is something that I really worry about, really worry about in that area. And, you know, gas doesn't have its passport checked at the border. And I have a girlfriend who grew up in Hungary. And when the Chernobyl disaster happened, she was telling me they didn't know for months. There was no social media. There was no cable news. And they didn't know for months that it had happened. So all the produce they were eating in Hungary had been contaminated, but nobody knew because they kept selling it. So it goes back to sort of the unintended consequences of things that can happen. And when diplomatic situations get escalated to war, I think there are so many unintended consequences that governments are trying to prevent. What gives me a great deal of hope is I think there's such a united front in the international community. But the unknown, which is Putin, is pretty scary. Mm-hmm. So, Breakline community, feel free to start contributing your questions into the chat, and we'll keep an eye on those as we continue the interview. Rena, as I was preparing for this interview, I came across this clip. It was a picture, actually, of you and your cameraman. And it was very hazy because you all were in the process of being tear gassed and you were describing this event and you described it, you were kind of making a joke out of it. You brought a sense of humor to it. You kind of said like, oh, this wasn't as bad as Israeli tear gas. That really makes you smell like a skunk (laughs) for two weeks. And what I thought was so fascinating about it was you're like in the extraordinarily heartbreaking moment 
you were able to also find a sense of humor. And I love a sense of humor as a crucial part of getting through hard things, you know, and have certainly found within our military community, they're so fucking funny. And I think it's partly (laughs) because like, you gotta just like persevere, you know? And so I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, like bringing levity to your work. It seems like even in these extraordinarily difficult circumstances, you find a way to, you know, to laugh. Mm. Uh, You know, I think that's so important. And I love that the community, you say they're hilarious. So true. Because I think it's sometimes a coping mechanism when you're enduring hard times, right? That somehow you make light of it, make fun of it. It gets you to rethink in your brain and deal with the danger or the threat. And the clip you're talking about somebody was replaying sort of moments in my life. And that's why I was sort of saying it at the time when the tear gas is going off in Baghdad and it was launched essentially by the U S military. I should say it wasn't tear gas. It was actually a smoke that they throw before they go in somewhere to kind of clear out the area. But I was tear gassed in Israel and that tear gas was, they were preventing protests. And so as a deterrent, they release this tear gas that burns your eyes, really stings. You can't breathe. But once it was over, like, okay, okay, fine. You throw water on your face, whatever. This particular one stays on you for two weeks because it's meant to be a deterrent. Like, no, no, no. You thought that moment was bad. This is going to live with you for two weeks. So you never do this again. So I had to cut my hair, get rid of my clothes and shoes. And I tried everything. I even tried to like bathe in tomato juice because someone said tomato juice, take it. nothing worked, nothing worked. I had to wait two weeks and it sure is a deterrent. I didn't go back there. <laughs> Rita, so you continue with your career, you become an anchor and you anchor these major news programs. And in some ways that must've been a really different experience because it's like less being totally on the ground and in the middle of everything and more really storytelling from, but more from a distance, I imagine. Did you experience those phases in your career differently? Yes. What a great question. I felt like being a reporter, I really enjoyed being on the ground and being able to tell the stories. As an anchor, when you've had some experience, it's also wonderful to be able to connect the dots to the audience, especially all the foreign news I ex- reporting experience I'd had. When something would break, it was easier to sort of explain and put it into context, which I think a good anchor should always do. And I also feel like a good reporter might not necessarily make a good anchor and a good anchor might not necessarily make a good reporter, but I really, for people who want to go into journalism, I always recommend start off reporting, whether it's print or TV or website or whatever, because then you understand the basics of what it's like to flesh out, do the storytelling, find the facts, and how do you present them? So that really helped having that experience early on. Rena, I want to get into communications a little bit because there's so much overlap actually between you as an expert communicator and storyteller, and the rest of us just communicating in our everyday lives, you know, how do we influence people to give us the information that we need to know when we need to know it? (laughs) You know, and that I assume would have been a huge part of your experience as a journalist. Like, I'm sure some people didn't want to be forthcoming to you or didn't want to provide you with a particular element of a story. Can you talk to us about some of your strategies for 
soliciting the information that you needed at the time. Like one of the specific use cases I'm thinking of is I just taught a class on sort of your first three months in the new job. And one of the things we need to do is set the stage for what is expected of me. And it's actually surprising how many times hiring managers are not equipped to kind of carve out what you need to know about performance, you know, or like there's constructive feedback, you know, it's not going well, but for whatever reason, there's some difficulty in the communication pathways. How do we get at the heart of it? You know, how do you go straight to it and extract the information that you need? I was speaking at a, at a school in, in New York for International Women's Day, and one of the teachers was also on the panel, and it's all of these ninth through 12th graders, and she takes the mic and she goes, I just want to acknowledge to everybody, I'm just really nervous right now. And she lets out, she takes this deep breath, lets it out, and does this, like, you know, kind of shakes it out. And she goes, I'm shaking it off. Okay, I'm good. And I thought, oh my God. How fabulous was that? She acknowledged in the moment how she was feeling. She confronted it, did what was needed to deal with it, and then moved on and was able to communicate her thoughts. But I had never seen that in action before. And I thought, wow, how remarkable that these students are witnessing this because this wasn't an act. She was nervous, not like super nervous at all. Like if she hadn't said anything, I don't think I would have ever thought of anything. But the fact that even though she wasn't that nervous, she was nervous enough that she felt she couldn't spit out her words. And I mentioned that because I think acknowledging if you get nervous when you speak, I would say a vast majority of people around the world feel that way. And I take it for granted because a girlfriend of mine struggles at, she's so smart and so brilliant, but she tells me it's really hard. I want to be able to communicate the way you communicate. And I think acknowledging, like when you have a problem, acknowledging it first, that you have a problem and you want to do something about it helps. The second thing I would say is I think we are all natural storytellers, all of us, in telling whether it's a narrative or a story. We're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, on TikTok, Facebook, whatever it might be. We're always telling stories, whether you think of it that way or not. So I think more than ever, you know how to tell a good story. You just might not realize it. And I love what you were saying about starting off and sort of first realizing what is my job description? What am I here to do? Because there were so many jobs that I took on that I didn't tell myself, this is my job. This is what I'm meant to do. Or I started off and I'm like, oh, I don't want to be doing this. Like, I really want to be doing that. And I think being able to tell somebody in the workforce, like, this is ultimately what I want to become. And even if you have to start from the beginning, my father said to me when I, when I started in Washington, he's like, even if you have to sweep the floors at a news station, get in there, be kind to everybody and watch, observe and learn. It doesn't matter. Like you are not above any job. And I think that's really helped me. No matter how far my career progressed, I always tried to bring it back to that. You are not above any job. And you'll find, and I found over the course of my career that it's highs and lows. It's not, I don't think anybody ever goes. And I have to say, going through the heartbreak and the difficulties, it was learning how to be resilient in that journey that then made me better at other things and happier in the jobs I would later take. And I think that's so important. It never feels good when you're struggling. And the depression and being down and feeling you're not good enough and might not ever make it back or just be at a place where you're happy is so hard to stomach. But I think if you, sometimes it's just about putting one foot in front of the other. And that is something significant. Mm. It reminds me 
of another speaker at Breakline who said, you know, we spend all this time trying to avoid feeling uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And yet, if you look back on the moments in your life of which you're most proud, those are moments of resilience and, and stretching and transcending fear or anxiety or insecurity. And so we should actually embrace those times because they tend to be so closely correlated with our growth. That's so true. I am coming to you from, I'm visiting here in Washington, D.C. because my longtime journalism professor mentor, Steve Roberts, who is was the husband of Koki Roberts, a Washington journalist. He wrote a book about her. She passed away a couple years ago. And in that book, he was talking about at the end, someone asked him, you know, what is it ultimately that you think makes a really good journalist? And he said, I think it's ultimately being kind to others. And I was kind of surprised by that. He goes, because if you can't be kind and help other people, how are you able to tell the stories of other people? How are you able to put yourself in their shoes, see what they're going through? And I thought, wow, that is so true. If people, whatever field they were in, were just kinder and reached back. He said, often, this is so true, especially in TV news, when people climb up the ladder, they pull the ladder up so nobody else can climb up. Because once you're an anchor of a show, you don't want anybody else. You don't want any competition. You don't want the backfill to come in and and then take your job. And he said, I think we need to be in a position where we're pulling the ladder down as we're climbing up. And I think that's so true about so many fields. Mm -hmm. Rena, I love that analogy because we see the opposite within the breakline community. Literally, as soon as a breakliner gets hired, they look over their shoulder and say, who can I bring with me? It's just such an inspiring part of our community. But when Koki Roberts passed away, you filmed the tribute for her. And as part of that tribute, you said, I wanted to be Koki Roberts. What was that about for you as you looked up to her as a mentor? You know, it's so funny because we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion. And Koki grew up in the South, uh, a big political family. And the one thing about her life, she they really were referred to as Washington royalty, they were so woke and aware of bringing people who did not look like them. And it wasn't a forced mandate. It was just the way they lived their lives in a way that I feel often diversity is, is forced. And it sometimes doesn't allow for the right person to get into the right spot. You know, it, I'm not saying it happens all the time, but there are moments that it's really hard as we're figuring this out and trying to allow more seats at the table. And I love that they both found ways to help people, gay, straight, Catholic, Jewish, black, white, all sorts of backgrounds that they felt deserved to be there. And I think also a lot of people came to them. You know, I I was a student and last night they said, you know, to know Steve was to know Koki. And that was so true. She took on his students too and helped him. And I think that's really so often people ask for help and you might not realize they're asking for help. but it's just super important to kind of have your antennas up and to see how you can make a difference. And sometimes the smallest things, just listening to someone's story who's struggling can just be transformative for them. And that's what I've really realized over the course of my career. It's the littlest things that can make the biggest difference sometimes in a person's life as they're trying to find that job or move up the ladder. I want to ask one more question around communications and the presentation of the self, you know, and how we can really tell our stories effectively. 
you've said about yourself, everyone has a story. I've made finding and telling them my life's work, which I really love. And I'm thinking about those moments when it feels hardest to get in the game, to be part of the conversation, to share something important. But those can sometimes also be the most important times to have a presence and to be contributing. Are there a couple of pointers that you could give our community to just have in mind when it feels hard, you know, it feels scary. There's some barrier to you jumping in. What should they have in mind? Like if you're only going to say one thing, or if you're only going to have one approach to jumping in, what is it? And just while you think about that, I interviewed my friend, Amy Cuddy, who's on the faculty at Harvard, and she's done a ton of research around how we can use our bodies and our physicality to further ourselves as professionals. We say a lot about ourselves with how we show up physically. And she shared this technique, this breathing technique that she used every time before she would go on for a big talk, for example, her TEDx talk. So are there things like that, like tips or tricks that you had? I'm sure there were moments where you had 15 seconds with someone that you really needed to interview. What were you thinking about? How did you jump in you know, and become part of the conversation, even if it felt hard? Just when I go in before an interview, I think to myself, if I could only get one question, what's the one question that really matters right now? What really matters? And sometimes when you go into an interview, for instance, it's what is it that I really want them to see? Or what is it that I really love about this job that I want to? And figuring out how to articulate that or work that in. You know, another thing I do often when I'm doing a live news report, I'll write down three points, like essentially three words, because sometimes when you're talking or doing an interview, you know, people are reading from a script or, and what happens, especially now, it's so hard. I mean, we've all gotten used to communicating through Zoom and I'm much more comfortable, but sometimes when you're not comfortable speaking and you get nervous, it's good to write things out. And so when I started doing my live shots in Baghdad, I would kind of stumble and somebody finally told me this, just write everything out, like write out your script, write everything out. So you have it. And then what I would do is I would take a highlighter and highlight like the important words that would then trigger kind of what I needed to remember. And now what I do, I essentially write down three points. Like these are the three points I want to make. So however I tell the story or say, these are the three things that by the end of my two minute report, that's live. I want to convey to you. And I found that's helped me organize and collect my thoughts. And sometimes if you're really nervous going into an interview or, or an important meeting, literally just writing out everything, like it was a diary, like the way you would want it to come out of your mouth, because by then you've said it, you've expressed it, you've seen it, you can write it and don't feel like you're going to have to read it, but you'll be surprised at how much you internalize and are able to then say out to people. And I found it helps. That is such great advice. And it reminds me of another guest, Alice Constantinople. She's now the chief marketing officer at Zendesk, but she's been speaking in Breakline for a long time. And she's a storytelling expert in a different capacity. But she always says around your personal brand, you have one, whether you construct it or not. And if you don't construct it, someone else is going to apply it to you. So be proactive in the story that you're telling about yourself. And with your advice around just being prepared with those three points, that's such applied advice for every meeting that matters that you attend. What are the three points that you're going to make? 
Rena, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about your family. Your parents emigrated to the U.S. from Kerala, and you grew up in Florida. And now your whole profession and your craft is around storytelling, but often telling stories about people or communities who would otherwise be overlooked in some capacity. Do you think being a first-generation American citizen, having parents who emigrated here and rebuilt their life here, do you think that some of your personal life contributed to this interest in telling stories across a wide range of communities? Yes, but possibly in a way you might not think about. Yes, my parents were immigrants, and but I had two different types of parents. My mom, who played by the rules and was very polite about everything, and my father, who did not. And I think what's helped me is seeing my father, who did not play by the rules. And what I mean by that is, you know, he goes into a restaurant, he gets bad service. And I think a lot of, I've seen a lot of our family members who are immigrants will just take the service whatever it is, what it is and go home. My dad will call the manager, not the waitress, like the manager. And it's probably not necessarily the best way to do. But I think what I learned from that is if something doesn't feel right, or you're not treated well, you've got to stand up for yourself. And seeing examples of that, of him going to the top or, you know, figuring out what went wrong here. So it's not repeated again and demanding whatever it is. You know, some people can rub people the wrong way. But for me, I remember the first day of high school, he said to me, you know, you're going to meet a lot of people. Make sure you make friends with the drug dealers. You need everybody in this life. So do not underestimate anybody, no matter where they come from, because you need everyone. And I think that's been sort of advice that I've lived by as a journalist. You know, don't underestimate anybody because you really do in this life need everybody. And you'll be surprised at moments where you think you might be above someone, but they are exactly the key to unlock the next door. Mm-hmm. I love that. Your dad is such a baller. That's <laughs> <laughs> one word for him. And Rena, I want to turn it over to some questions that were that are coming in on the chat. And there's one from Cody. And he said, Going back to when you were talking about being passionate about what you're doing, that you still hit low points and want to throw in the towel. What outlets did you use to get past those points of friction, the low points, and to continue pursuing something that you're passionate about? Oh, I love that question, Cody. I allow myself time to grieve. And I think that's important. Like just because something awful happened to you doesn't mean you pick up, move on. And if you don't pick up, move on and jump right back up you're not okay. I think being able to tell yourself like, this was a really crappy thing that happened. And okay, I don't feel great about this. And here's why. And uh, letting yourself be down. I always allow myself that acknowledgement. And I think it's helped me. But then I, I say to myself, what is it that I want? So what is it that I want now? And I try to figure out what that is. And I realize you can't do it alone. So who are the people I could reach out to who might give me advice and pick me up? And those are two things, three things, I guess, that I found have really helped me when I've gone through really difficult times on how to pick myself up. You've got to ask for help. And sometimes it's as simple as going to the one friend. You know, I do this podcast on mental health. It's called Ask Lisa, The Psychology of Parenting. It's with a psychologist, uh, New York Times bestselling psychologist, Lisa Demore. I'm going to tag in with you here, Rena, because this is one of the podcasts that I love. And you and Lisa talk a lot about parenting in this podcast. And 
so much of her advice is really pragmatic, but there was one episode where you were asking her if manifesting is actually a thing. <laughs> like, is that actually possible? <laughs> and I, this perked my ears up because our team at Breakline is constantly talking about manifesting. Like we're going to manifest that shit and it's going to happen. And so I was very curious to hear how she would respond. And she said, she thinks of manifesting as self-talk, you know, and the narratives running in the back of our minds about who we are, what our lives are like. And she said, this is actually really powerful. Yes. You know, I was just telling that group of students about Muhammad covering the funeral of Muhammad Ali. And when I grew up, Muhammad Ali always, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. I remember growing up rolling my eyes, like, why does he always say that? It wasn't until he died that hearing the stories from people around him that he kept repeating that over and over again. That was his line. And he really believed that. And I think all the difficulties he was forced to you know, experience and went through, he was able to overcome real obstacles because the song that was playing in his head is on the great. He believed that. He breathed that. And I think when we talk about manifesting is if you don't believe that to yourself in your head and you're like, well, I want to do that, but uh, I don't know. And, and I think, yeah, the self-talk is important. And I think of Muhammad Ali and how he used that phrase over and over again. And I really believe that self-talk helped him in so many avenues of his career. I agree with you. We have a question from Chris and he says, you were told this space isn't for you. And he's asking, would you find or create your own space where you feel welcomed or do you alter the space that you were trying to enter to begin with? I think this is a really interesting question. I've actually done both. Wow. No, it's a great question. And I've never thought about this before. So do you alter the space? I think one being 42, Rena is very different than Rena at 22. And I think Rena at 22 might have just gone with the flow. But Rena at 42 has more confidence as who she is when she enters that room. And she's realized playing to the common denominator or pretending to be someone that you're not never works. I will admit it took me years to kind of understand that. So decades, quite frankly. So I feel very comfortable in my skin and who I am. I feel the environment is a little bit more welcoming for that in this moment than it was maybe in the 80s or early 90s or whatever. But I think that's come with age of being comfortable and not feeling like you've got to be somebody. But I also acknowledge going through life, you know, probably morphing into what people wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. That reminds me, one of my, I've learned so much from my mom and one of her favorite mottos, which I tell my girls all the time too, is the best years in life are ongoing. And I really want everyone to embrace that because it just gets better. You know, and I remember being 22 and thinking like, is it ever going to be this great again? (laughs) But there's so so fabulous. Totally. It's the best. I'm 45 and I freaking love being 45. It's amazing. I feel the same Um, way. mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Another question from Megan. She says, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your unbelievable experiences. Piggybacking off of resilience and insecurity. I'd love to know what your most embarrassing moment was. Maybe was it on live TV and how did you overcome it? Mm -hmm. 
when I was working at Fox, the boss over there knew that I wanted to be on TV, but also knew that Fox would never let me be on. So I told her, I said, look, on the weekends, I'm going to work. This local Baltimore station has allowed me a chance on the weekends to be like the fill-in reporter. So it was like some court case or something and comes back with the verdict. And it's like the 12 o'clock news on Saturday or, or Friday. And I'm supposed to do the live. And I completely blank. Like it's my first time being on and I'm like, uh, uh, I like, I, I forgot what I was going to say, like on television and Baltimore is a pretty big market. It's a pretty big market. So I think at that point, whenever I tried to do another live shot, I kept reliving that moment. Like, oh my gosh, is that going to happen again? Is it going to happen again? Am I going to forget? And then I'll be just there and not able to say anything. And I think getting rid of that, it probably wasn't the most embarrassing moment, but it comes to mind now, Bethany, because I think sometimes part of the struggle is letting yourself repeat that horrible moment. And then it like holds you back from your full potential. So I didn't realize it at the time, but somebody told me once you end up doing six or seven live shots on cable, like a day on a topic. That's kind of how it, how it works. And another reporter said to me when I was first starting off, was, look, it's just a matter of numbers, like statistics. If you're doing six or seven a day, you're going to screw up on one or two. You need to know you got to pick yourself back up and not keep thinking about that mistake and move on. And I found that to be really helpful. Wasn't it Einstein who said, I fail, I fail, I fail, and that's why I succeed? Oh, I I love that. that. I Mm -hmm. love that. You know, we had a three-time mom and three-time Olympian on the Ask Lisa podcast. And she says one of the things she does every night at dinner is she asks her kids, how did you fail today? And she says, it gets them, kids have such a high standard and it gets them to realize failure is a part of life and it's okay. It's really Mm -hmm. okay. And I thought, wow, how much success she's setting her kids up for by being open about failure. Mm, I love that. And when it's an Olympian, you know that someone (laughs) We have another question here, which is being a woman from South Asia or having South Asian heritage and having an age limit or being on a clock, how do you recommend overcoming that? That's an awesome question because it's so true about being South Asian. There's actually a a saying where my parents are from in Kerala, Malayalam, that after 24, a woman loses her beauty. Like that is what they believe. Yeah. And the reason why they say that is they want people married young. You know, that's the whole thing. So if you haven't found somebody by 24, something is wrong with you. Obviously, things have changed and evolved and, you know, it's it's different. But there was really that belief and that pressure. So it is such a great question about the age limit and that clock. But I think we're in such a different point because I think, I really do believe it's like a fine wine. Like it just really, you really do get better because you have the confidence and you have the experience, but more importantly, you've gone through these really tough times. And I think it's like building a muscle. It truly, truly is. It just, you know, the more resistance, the better you become. And it doesn't feel like it in the moment because it's such hard work and it's so difficult, but I think you get to a point maybe in your forties or whatever that is. And you realize how that without that struggle, you wouldn't be able to achieve the success or the point you are in life without Mm -hmm. overcoming those hurdles. So true. And as a 45 year old, I'll share that 
I feel my most powerful and my most beautiful and my most influential when I'm being completely authentic. Yeah. The times when I'm trying to imitate somebody else, I'm never going to be better than someone else's original, you know? And so just to be completely original, to be completely yourself, it's so liberating and it's so much fun. It is so liberating. And you're right. I think that's the one quality I think everybody looks for is authenticity. You know, if you're not authentic and true, it people sniff that out. And especially on TV, I'll tell you the comments from readers when I was pretending to be buttoned up news anchor or whatever, you know, people will write to you and they see right through that. Rena, you recently interviewed Melinda French Gates. Mm-hmm. No big deal. so I'm interested in that interview which you covered some pretty profound topics around the role of childcare in enabling women to fulfill their career potential around the world I'm also interested in some of your favorite interviews ever you know the people that that you sat down with where you just came away and thought wow we really contributed something profound to the global discourse Wow. First off, can I just say, I'm now realizing why you're so, the, the reason why I was like, oh my God, I told our friend George, who is this Bethany? I've got to meet her when I heard the interview because you really prepare for these interviews. I'm so blown away by the detailed research you've done. You know, it's really impressive. That's why your interviews are so good. I'm realizing yeah, this as we're talking. The interviews. Yes. You know, I interviewed Melinda French Gates was a recent one. And we are doing this podcast called Hero, The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. It just launched on International Women's Day, and it's looking at different countries around the world. What are the things you can do to help female entrepreneurs who aren't even on the ladder? Like they're so poor, they don't even have a rung on the ladder to stand on. And I've been really impressed with her sincere interest and passion to help women and acknowledging childcare is a massive issue. And also data, the more data you can get to help communities, whatever it is, it can really help guide and shape policy. So I was really touched because I think as we emerge out of this pandemic, what are people doing? Like, how are we living our lives differently? And I I just come back to this thing personally, where we've got to be helping each other. Like we have discovered how interconnected our world is through this virus in in a horrible way. But it's also a wonderful way that I think we've just got to help each other out. The other person I would say is President Jimmy Carter. He came, he actually really ticked off President Obama. He decided to go into the Gaza Strip. The militant group Hamas had taken over and won democratic elections in Gaza. And the Bush administration at the time didn't think that was going to happen. It did. And Jimmy Carter wanted to go and talk to Hamas, which the U.S. has a policy that they don't talk to militants like that. And the Israelis definitely did not want an Israeli, I mean, a former U.S. president coming into Gaza. And then second, taking the Secret Service into an area where people are not allowed to go really is also dangerous. But I'll tell you something, I really wanted an interview with him. So I found out, you know, the press, we get the, the schedule ahead of time in a way that's not published publicly for a president. And I found out where he was and I met him at all the stops in Jerusalem. And I'm like, I'm with Fox News. And they're like, oh, God. And his advisors kind of shielded him away from me. Ultimately, the last stop of the day, he goes, you know, I'm going to sit down and do that interview with you. And I asked him some tough questions. And it was a great interview. And I think that's probably one of my favorite interviews because it was that persistence. His advisors 
were saying she's with Fox News, don't sit down with her. And at the end of the interview, he said to me, you can interview me anytime you want. I really enjoyed this. But he wasn't scared of the tough questions. He faced it. And he understood that it was so important for democracy and, and getting answers. And I love that. I love that about President Carter. Thank you, Rena. I know we're coming up on our last couple of minutes here. And I'm just reflecting on the role of storytelling and the role of journalism in a democracy. And I feel like even in the United States, there were many people who felt like that was has been tested in, in recent history. And even in my own life every day, even if I only have time to scan headlines, I always look across four publications, Fox, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post, because I'm trying to calibrate on where the truth is. Do you have thoughts around how journalism and reporting has evolved, if at all, over the last 20 years? And advice or recommendations for those of us who aren't interested in a one-sided view of something, but really want to get at the truth, you know, um, really interested in your thoughts on both counts. Great question. And thank you for that, because it's something that I, I think about often. Remember when I said, when there's a problem, you've just got to really acknowledge it first before you can go on. And it pains me to say this, but I really, really believe that news is broken in the U.S. right now, that we're at a point where trust is so low in journalists. It's not a right-wing thing. It's not a left-wing thing. It's on both sides. If you look at the polling, both the left and the right believe that they just don't feel like they can trust journalists in a way that maybe 10 years ago they trusted them more. So I think we've really got to look at how we are doing the news because I do feel like it's broken right now. But having said that, the way you talked about the four publications, I think part of our job living in a democratic society is staying informed. And I think seeking out those outlets, you know, TV news ratings have declined to unbelievably low levels, but it's fine. If you're not watching TV news, make sure you're staying informed. And I think even watching this war, you know, having covered multiple wars, it's really interesting to see the disinformation on both sides and how easy that can spread. And everybody has a vested interest, both sides. U.S. has certain interests. Russia has interests. Ukraine has interests. They don't all align up, obviously. But I think you've got to seek out and find what's digestible to you. And, and sometimes it might be just following somebody on Instagram that you know is known for being down the middle, and that's how you get your news. But I do believe that we all have a responsibility in protecting democracy, and that is to stay informed. And if you feel the need you've got to take action in your community. And I think that has become something that's so important in a way that when I was growing up, I don't think I appreciated or valued. Mm -hmm. Rena Nainen, founder of Good Trouble Productions. What a pleasure to spend the last hour with you. Thank you so much for being with the Breakline community today. Oh. I really am honored to be here and I'm so happy. I hope you guys will have me back. I'm so impressed with this community. I hope to come back. Absolutely. We'll roll out the red carpet. Thank you so much, Rena. Safe travels back home. And thanks to everyone for joining us today. Pleasure to see all of you. Hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you, Rena. Thank you so much, Bethany. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of the Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. 
And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. 